Consider the case of the Armvorax. It's a perfect example of exactly the sort of crazy creature you'd run into way back when Dungeons & Dragons was still fun to play. The first edition Monstrous Manual 2 was full of these sorts of things, and not just because they were a bit desperate to fill the page count. Lots of good things were in there, including the return of many of the things cut out of D&D during the 80s moral panic. But clearly, several of them are just taking up space. Evidence? 19 varieties of beholders, a ton of everyday regular animals just so they could then stat out the giant versions of them, more insects than you can shake a stick at, and the Ormvorax. The Ormvorax is described as follows. Despite being only the size of a large badger, the Ormvorax is an incredibly dangerous creature. The animal is covered with coarse golden hair and has small silver eyes with golden pupils. It has eight powerful legs that end in three-inch long copper claws. The arm vorax's shoulders are massively muscled, while its heavy jaw is full of coppery teeth. The creature weighs over 500 pounds. This incredible density provides the animal with much of its natural protection. This, combined with its speed, power, and sheer viciousness, makes it one of the most dangerous species yet known. And while all that may be true, that isn't what makes the Armvorax so dangerous to your typical party of adventurers. Oh no, no sir, not even a little. See, the Armvorax belongs to the same class of monster as the Rust Monster. Not an official class, mind you, but certainly one of a very specific class of monsters almost solely meant to take things away from the player characters. Rust monsters are famous for causing armor and weapons made of metal to corrode and disintegrate as part of their combat and feeding strategy. Their sole reason for existence is to remove items from the characters, especially those that had become too powerful and therefore annoying to the GM. And in case you haven't worked out the dog Latin yet, the Arum Vorax has but one function. It devours gold. Woe betide the adventuring party that has too much of it. A GM in need of a way to lighten the pockets of the party and prevent them from buying up the next kingdom they come across is well advised to keep an arm vorax handy. But those same GMs are advised to use them wisely as well. See, if you aren't careful, you might only be further empowering the party. Because the Arum Vorax has more to it than just an insatiable appetite for precious metals. If the party can manage to kill one, they've suddenly got access to even more gold and even more powerful equipment. If the Arum Vorax is burned in a forge, approximately 150 to 200 pounds of gold are left behind. This burning process is very difficult and usually takes between one and two weeks to perform. Of course, the hide may be removed before the creature is burned. If burned at the same time, the hide will provide an additional 21 to 40 pounds of gold. Which in itself is a very tidy profit, even if it does take some time to get it. But really, this is a misuse of the bounty with which you now find yourself. Sure, you can buy a few things with 240 pounds of gold, which, at the rate of 10 gold pieces to the pound, comes out to 2400 gold pieces... But really, you want to do the other thing you can do. If an arm vorax is killed with a minimum of cutting damage to its hide, the hide may be turned into a garment of incredible strength and beauty worth 15,000 to 20,000 gold pieces. 
The garment will also protect its wearer as armor depending on the size of the arm borax and provide a bonus to fire resistance. That's right, in order to really aggravate your GM and get 10 times as much value out of your arm vorax as well as powerful magical equipment, all you have to do is make something you can wear out of its fur. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Most animals, as we're sure you're aware, are covered in some sort of skin, and often that skin has some value to it. Not in terms of money necessarily, though that certainly comes into it later, but in terms of protection and warmth, usually to the animal already occupying said skin. Even as human beings, our skin offers some limited protection against extremes of heat and cold, as well as a certain amount of protection from damage to our internal bits. There are limits, though. Generally speaking, most of us human animals operate best between 97 and 99 degrees Fahrenheit. 98.6 is considered normal internal operating temperature for us, but you don't have to be a scientician to know that an external temperature of 98.6 is downright uncomfortable for most of us. Sure, we can tolerate higher outside temperatures than that, but not for very long before we start suffering the effects of hyperthermia, or heat stroke. Hyperthermia occurs when your body absorbs more heat than it can give off. It is incapable of regulating its own temperature, and you have to keep drinking water and taking more frequent breaks out of the sun in order to help it out. If you're engaged in any strenuous activity, your body may decide enough is enough and shut you down. Similarly, hypothermia occurs when your body can't generate enough heat to keep up with the amount it is losing. Surprisingly, this doesn't only occur when it is cold out. All it takes is for your internal body temperature to go below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. If your body is unable to cope with the drop in temperature, hypothermia begins. Now usually this is because it is much colder outside than usual, say in winter. But it can also happen because you've just jumped into a very cold pool in the middle of summer. Or because you have one of several medical conditions that means your body is unable to cope with temperature changes. Eventually your body will decide enough is enough and shut you down. By which we mean you die. And this was a huge problem for our earliest ancestors. This inability to regulate temperature beyond a narrow band of a few degrees up or down meant that in order not to die just because the sun came up or went down, they had to restrict themselves to places where the average temperature was survivable. They couldn't do all the spreading out and moving around they would eventually need to do until they could find a way to better regulate their temperature in warm and cold weather. Fortunately, Fire was an early idea that showed promise provided R&D could work out how to pack it around conveniently and not burn the entire place down at the same time. When they did, it helped solve the cold problem, but it turned out to be a real bummer when it came to the heat problem. At some point in those early days though, someone realized that the various animals they'd been following around and hunting as part of the whole hunter-gatherer thing seemed to do way better than they did at not freezing to death and they hadn't even worked out how to make sparks yet. Not only that, your average aurochs was way harder to kill than your average person. What gives? In another of our patented short little steps, it didn't take them too long to work out that if you took the skin of the thing you killed, cleaned it up as best you could, and then wrapped yourself in it, you could stave off the cold, mitigate the heat, and maybe survive the odd spirit of the chest as well. It was kind of like being the animal without being the animal. You get all the benefits, plus a nice lunch. 
and thus, more or less, was the fur trade born. Skins and furs of various animals were traded around from one group to another. Aurochs skins that were only available where Aurochs lived were traded for other things that people with the Aurochs skins couldn't get. And of course, as time went on, people gradually developed the various skills needed to turn the skins and furs into the other sorts of things they needed for their daily lives. Then, a few hundred thousand years passed, and the Russians showed up. Okay, it's just possible that it wasn't as entirely smooth and streamlined as we've just explained. But it would take us an entire year of episodes to cover it all, and really, we've talked about some of the major bits already. Check out our episodes on leather armor and palimpsests for more. The point is, a lot of stuff happened with animal skins, leather, and fur. But things really started to heat up when the Russians got involved in the whole thing, around about the early Middle Ages. By then, they had already established two major trading posts, one on the Baltic Sea and one on the Black Sea. From those two posts, they were able to trade with most of Europe and parts of Asia, which sort of let them corner the existing market for furs. Among the sorts of furs they made available were the raw furs of beavers, wolves, foxes, and squirrels, and most of those would eventually end up in the markets of Leipzig, where they would then go on to other parts of Europe. Now, keep in mind that even in Russia, most of the time, when you hunted an animal, it was you and your family who intended to make use of the fur for clothes and other goods. Any surplus was generally relatively small, and once local needs were taken care of, even smaller. So outgoing tradable furs were in short supply, which, if you understand how these sorts of things work, meant that the value of the furs that did get out and into the trade markets gradually went up as first the elite, and then the regular citizens began demanding more nutkin skins to keep their hands warm. When the Kievan Russians who started this whole thing moved into Siberia, their tiny fur trade business suddenly exploded. Siberia was full of just the sorts of animals they had already begun establishing a market for, as well as a whole bunch of new animals that were even better. In particular, the sable, a species of marten, became so popular that even to this day it retains its status as a luxury good. With sable in high demand, it became feasible to switch from hunting for your own needs to hunting strictly for the furs alone. You had enough money and bargaining power at that point to take care of you and yours on profit alone. And hunt they did. Or rather, a lot of people hunted on behalf of the Kievan Russians. See, it turns out the easiest way to get a bunch of furs in a hurry and then turn a huge profit from them is to make the natives pay tribute to you for just hanging around and offering the opportunity. The Kievans implemented a yasak or fur tax which compelled the native Siberians to pay tribute to them on a regular basis. One of the reasons for this was that the Siberians were far better at taking undamaged pelts from the animals they skinned, and so they sold or traded for more. In exchange for paying the Yasak, the Russians promised to help protect the Siberians from Cossack raids. Raids which would mysteriously occur whenever someone didn't pay the Yasak. Weird, huh? Naturally, the Yasak was to be paid in an amount of sable pelts. But once sable numbers began to decline, certain exchanges were allowed. For instance, at one point in the 1800s, instead of one sable pelt, the following was accepted as its equivalent. One fox, glutton, a relative of the marten, or otter pelt. Two blue fox pelts, 16 polar fox pelts, or 100 squirrel pelts. 
The Yasak, combined with the Russians' own trapping efforts as well as straight-up trading with the native people, allowed them to expand their fur trading efforts all the way to the Pacific coastline by 1650 CE, and even into Alaska as they chased after sea otter fur, making the Russian fur trade industry the largest in the world. This, of course, was no good to anyone who wasn't Russian. Several countries in the world thought that this was unfair, and once it became known that North America had such a rich supply of untapped furs, it was anyone's game to play for second place. Part of the drive for countries to open up their own fur trading enterprises in the New World was a fashion trend that had been going on since at least the late 14th century, right on through to the mid-19th. Chaucer even wrote about it in the Canterbury Tales. A merchant was there with a forked beard, in motley and high on his horse he sat, upon his head a Flanders beaver hat. That's right, the beaver hat. Made from beaver fur, which had been felted, or mashed together until it forms a solid mass of workable material, the felt can be formed into a variety of hat shapes, all of which are referred to as beaver hats, named for the material, not the shape. So popular were beaver hats that the Russians had all but eliminated the Eurasian beaver from which the felt was made at the time, and were desperate to find and open new areas to hunt. When they began having difficulty locating new sources, the demand and prices for beaver hats increased. As European settlers arrived in North America, they were delighted to discover that the local natives had been trapping and skinning the North American beaver for centuries. Not only was there a supply of ready-made goods to trade for, fresh skins were available as well. In the early 1600s, the pilgrims' main source of goods and money was made by trapping and trading for the beaver pelts and sending them directly off to Europe. It wasn't long before these beavers, too, were nearly hunted out, prompting the new settlers to spread north and west in the search for more until they came to Hudson's Bay and the Great Lakes. At that point, several nations were in search of further profits from furs. The French had begun in Quebec in what was then New France and worked their way west towards Lake Superior, while the English worked up from the colonies to the same lake. Even the Dutch in and around New Amsterdam were in on it and working the same areas, also, the Europeans back home could continue to have beaver felt for their hats. And then, suddenly, after 500 years being the most popular kind of hat in all of Europe, in 1850 everyone lost interest and the beaver hat stopped being the fashionable must-have accessory as people switched to silk hats. Tastes changed and, fortunately for the beaver, it changed away from them. Which is just as well. A few more years and it's likely the North American beaver wouldn't have survived. Fur trapping was a hard business, especially in North America. Competition from various quarters meant that a lot of people were out looking for the same furs. Since the best furs were on animals in their winter coats, it also meant you were out in some of the worst weather available, trudging miles through snow to check trap lines on a regular basis. The whole business was pretty much a headache from start to finish, even for experienced trappers signed on with a regular company for support. Since the whole business required extensive supplies for trading with natives, as well as enough for basic survival in the long winter months, a lot of forward planning was needed just to have a modicum of success. Alexander Mackenzie, for whom Canada's Mackenzie River is named, demonstrated just how complicated it all was in a journal entry he made. According to Mackenzie, the orders for the goods are sent from Canada to England on the 25th of October, 1796. They are shipped from London in March of 1797. 
They arrive in Montreal in June of 1797. They're packed for canoe transport in the course of that summer and winter, and they are sent from Montreal in May of 1798. They arrive in Indian country and are exchanged for goods the following winter of 1798-1799, which furs then come to Montreal in September 1799, and are shipped to London, where they are sold in March and April, and paid for in May or June of 1800. For those of you keeping track at home, that's a four-year lead time. The order for goods you place this year don't show a profit until four years later. And in between time, you could suffer all manner of calamity from weather, your fellow trapper, the natives, or just the usual problems of being a person living on the edge of civilization for months at a time and the whims of fate. But what amazing profits you could make. Some trappers reported as much as 80% profit in an average year. And if you could sign on with one of the major trapping companies of the day, say the Hudson's Bay Company or the Northwest Company, you could benefit from the support of the institution, which not only helped to regularize profits, taking most of the financial risk on themselves in exchange for a percentage of your haul, but also helped provide for you in other ways with pensions and insurance. So lucrative was the fur trade that America's first multimillionaire, John Jacob Astor, made his fortune by first buying into a fur trade company and then buying up all its competition until he had a virtual monopoly on, well, basically everything in North America. Things were even more complicated by world events, though. At first, fur trapping was easy. The French and English, as well as a few other interests, operated in and around the Great Lakes pretty much as they pleased. They traded with the natives and generally got along fairly well with most of them. Then, a variety of wars occurred first between the French and English, in which the English more or less took over New France and renamed it Canada, and then between the English and their colonies in the American Revolution, followed shortly by the War of 1812. Each time one faction went to war against the other, trappers, natives, and the various people who worked with them were forced to choose sides, and new restrictions came into play about who could trap where, where they could offload their furs, and whom they were allowed to trade with. Many trappers really didn't care. They just wanted to collect their goods and make their money and get on with life. Some trappers switched allegiances freely depending on who was nominally in charge in the places they were working. One year they would be French, the next they'd align with the British, and the next America, depending on who was paying the best and what area they claimed. In 1805, the United States declared that no one hunting and trapping south of the Canada-US border was allowed to trade their wares north of that same border. The fledgling country began to move the natives off their traditional lands, meaning the fur trappers' traditional trading partners were being forced to move further and further away. Civilization was encroaching more and more into the lands around the Great Lakes, the bottom dropped out of the beaver hat industry, and, sensing a change in the wind, Astor opened the fur trade into China and shortly thereafter began trading in opium through his fur company. By then, though, pretty much all the profits had been wrung out of the fur trade for the small independent trappers. That, combined with Astor's monopoly, pretty much shut down the industry for anyone who wasn't Astor, and it went into decline. Today, it has recovered somewhat. Canada reports 60,000 licensed trappers, nearly half of whom are indigenous people. Russia is still a power player in the fur industry, but little of it involves trapping of wild animals as the industry has largely shifted to farm-raised harvesting. Profits and opportunity for individuals are nothing like they once were, but globally the fur trade is still a $15 billion industry. 
If only you had an arm vorex big enough. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We hope you like it enough to consider sharing it with your friends. And if you've just discovered the show, perhaps you'll take the time to subscribe to it as well. That'd be neat. Our patrons are the best people ever. With their support, the show keeps happening. Part of the way we say thanks to them is by providing a short bonus episode each month that only they get to listen to. If you'd like to get in on that too, head over to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com. You'll find information on how to support the show, subscription links, and a whole bunch of other episodes just waiting for you to re-listen to. Or to listen to for the very first time. You can even find a way to contact us there. Portions of this episode were informed by Robert Silbernagel's new book, The Cadeaux, A Fur Trade Family on Lake Superior. You can find a link to it on Amazon in this episode's description on our webpage. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, not a fur-bearing mammal. Music for this episode comes to us from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. I wouldn't even wear faux fur. I prefer to go the cheap route and not shave my legs. <laughs>